The Dalai Lama once said that today, more than ever before, life must be characterized by a sense of universal responsibility, not only nation to nation and human to human, but also human to other forms of life. Join me in conversation with some of the world's most creative thinkers to explore the importance of ethics to this responsible decision-making in today's technologically infused world. Artists, entrepreneurs, scientists, journalists, academics, and beyond navigate the gray, the blend of right and wrong, of opportunities and risks on all sides of our most important challenges, whether gene editing, civilian space travel, or artificial intelligence. They also probe the age-old and more ethically black and white behaviors, such as sexual misconduct, human trafficking, and life-threatening inequality. Our guests endeavor to transcend religious, political, national, and ethnic perspectives, but recognize the inevitable biases we all bring. The term ethics can make us uncomfortable. At the Ethics Incubator, we confront the E-word head-on. It may be inconvenient or even unclear, but ethical conundrums underpin almost every headline and affect almost every human choice. With truth under threat and the boundaries of humanity blurring, I believe that ethical decision-making tethers us to our humanity. As always, we welcome your thoughts. First of all, thank you so much for coming all the way to Stanford um, for classes and for this interview. Really appreciate your being here from Hong Kong. Thank you. Can we just start for anybody who might not know about Hanson Robotics? How did that get started, and how did the project of the robot Sophia get started? A friend of mine who's an AI researcher named uh, Ben Gertzel, mm -hmm. uh, mathematician, really um, brilliant guy, um, who is visiting uh, another um, uh, researcher. Uh, researching consciousness, Gino Yu. They brought me over there uh, to speak, um, and um, and we started talking about ways to work together. They introduced me to some investors. I pitched in this um, Start Me Up HK awards, um, at which is a, a government funded um, uh, uh, entrepreneurship competition, and I won the grand prize. So they got me free rent for two and a half years. Well, that sounds like an incentive. It certainly okay. was, and uh, yeah, so. And so you set up the company in Hong Kong, and then how did Sophia start? How did the concept of Sophia start? Well, um, Sophia was born of many generations of robot designs. Okay. I felt that robots would be a really good interface for artificial intelligence mechanically with the world and socially with people. And also, um, I felt that making uh, uh, robots lifelike, making them biologically inspired, intelligent robots, would be a, a way to uh, make AI smarter because human intelligence is not um, disembodied, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it, it's, it's fully embodied, it's okay. connected to the body. So making robots um, human-like could make them interesting and useful uh, and, and also works of art, a new kind of um, figurative animated art mm -hmm. um, that with artificial intelligence would both be a more interesting art because it would be really interactive, but then it would also become smarter. Mm -hmm. It could become the smartest AI in history potentially, and it could really understand the human experience by um, by walking in our footsteps. And mm -hmm. um, so, um, 
Uh, Sophia was um, started after making many robots, like um, I did a robot called um, Alice, which was at the University of Geneva, um, Eva Alice, and then Mia Alice that was at the University of Pisa, and those were serving cognitive AI and um, mm -hmm. autism research, and um, uh, the Bina 48 robot, which was a collaboration with the Terrorism Movement, and um, the uh, Charles Babbage robot, and uh, um, the Albert Einstein, walking Albert Einstein with the Hubo group. So I made all of these robots, but I really wanted a design that would um, speak to the human heart all around the world. So with okay. Sophia. Yeah, so how did you get to what Sophia looks like? Um, and as we've talked about, the media has said, oh, this is a robot that looks like the famous late actress, Audrey Hepburn. Uh, and some people might initially look at her and say, well, she's a white woman of a particular kind of build and representative of a particular kind of notion of beauty. But actually, when we spoke earlier, you really talked about the accessibility. So can you talk a little bit about how you got to the Sophia look, and then we'll get to the what Sophia does and thinks. Yeah, so Sophia was not primarily inspired by Audrey Hepburn. And so um, that was, in, like I, um, uh, one reporter said it, and lots of reporters just imitated it. <laughs> um, or so Sophia, the first model of Sophia was actually Nefertiti. So the, the famous um, sculpture of Nefertiti, the ancient um, Egyptian, African, Ethiopian queen, mm -hmm. um, was um, uh, an influence on you know, all of art history, across cultures. And um, so, so in a way, um, Sophia was first inspired by an ancient African queen. Mm -hmm. What spoke to me about that was here you had um, a, a person um, whose beauty, whose appearance, mm -hmm. um, pushed some neural codes in viewers across okay. uh, continents, across cultures, um, across, across centuries. Yeah. <laughs> and okay. so, with uh, with that in in mind, and moreover, when mm -hmm. I look at the face of the sculpture of Nefertiti. I feel like I kind of know who that person is. I can see. There's a familiarity. Yeah. There's and and there's you know it's kind of like um like actors that people connect with. You feel a sense of instant connection. Like you, like you understand what's what's going on inside their being. There's a sense of. Um, of well, what you were saying earlier also is sort of if these robots, if embodying. Uh, the AI is going to contribute to making it more effective, better, yeah. more intelligent, then people need to be able to connect to it if there's going to be sort of feedback into that through social interaction. That's right. Um, so Sophia is, is not only connected with people, Sophia has become a downright celebrity, right? True. So can you talk a little bit about the places that Sophia has gone? I mean, sure. I saw Sophia on CNBC, the, you know, the, the incredible business news channel, I saw her on CBS this morning. Um, lots of you know. So where is Sophia gone, and what is Sophia's path now? Well, um, so, I mean, Sophia's been all around the world, um, and so she's become. Uh, she's spoken at the United Nations in New York and in Geneva. Um, she's uh, been um, you know representative for the AI for Good uh, conference. Mm -hmm. She was uh, selected as United Nations Innovation Champion and. Mm -hmm. sort of a kind of official position mm -hmm. so she's gone around and sp spoken with school kids about science technology mm -hmm. the future of artificial so all different kinds of audiences all different uh, ages and all different yeah. cultures Africa 
yeah. Southeast Asia, Europe. So um, let's, as long America, as we're talking South about America. different geographies and different cultures, let's talk about Saudi Arabia. Because yeah. um, as I mentioned to you, I didn't actually encounter Sophia through all of my ethics of tech research and teaching and advising. I encountered Sophia through my Chinese lesson. And incidentally, I think my Chinese is not nearly as good as Sophia's. Um, but on this show called Dianhua Dialogue, um, and Sophia was explaining to the audience that she had Saudi citizenship. And I thought that was quite curious. It was the first robot, I think, to have citizenship like that. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that came about? Yeah, it was actually a surprise. Um, so I was invited to go speak at this uh, innovation uh, in tech forum, uh, and I declined that. Um, but uh, Jean in Lim, Saudi Arabia, in Saudi Arabia, um, Jean Lim, who is our now CEO, but at the time she was our chief marketing officer, she encouraged that we send this uh, Sophia that we followed through, mm -hmm. um, and so she organized it. But she didn't go. Um, so Sophia was mostly there by herself with one um, programmer okay. who went, and um, then I thought no big deal until the next morning after the event when I saw in the news that they had bestowed the citizenship on her and it was like this big thing and the news started going crazy. I called Jean, I was like, what is this um, about? Right. Um, she was surprised as well. Okay, so, so you um, had no idea that, Saudi, that the Saudi yeah, officials were gonna bestow citizenship. That's right, yeah, okay. so so we were, we were blindsided. Okay. Um, and so I discussed it with Jean, like, what do we do? Right. Yeah, it's kind of like, um, well, lots of companies are having pretty serious ethics dilemmas with a number of countries. I yeah. mean, the Sultan of Brunei's uh, recent, you know, sort of discussions about stoning people. Yeah. Um, Saudi Arabia has been in the news because of the death of Khashoggi. And there's been, you know, many different businesses have had to face various ethical questions about engaging with yes. these and other countries. So there, there were two um, factors. One was, um, you know, do we take a strong stance? Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of like um, take a fiery position, mm -hmm. or do we flow with it? Okay. Um, and Jean recommended that w that um, we take this position where she would speak mm -hmm. about the issues, okay. speak about women's rights and human rights, the rights mm -hmm. of foreign workers, mm -hmm. about the future of rights of sentient beings. And in or the context today. Of, uh, and real women today, especially okay. um, women's rights in Saudi Arabia. So she has, the, the robot has um, adopted that particular position. So mm -hmm. as the way that Sophia works, there's mm -hmm. AI mm -hmm. in her, but the AI is not fully sentient. It doesn't mm -hmm. make its own decisions and this mm -hmm. kind of thing. And we craft her personality. Okay. So, uh, so Jean leads this team of really brilliant writers and for uh, Sophia, I mean, the majority of, of, of the writers inside our company, the, uh, the content developers are women. Mm -hmm. um, and that's particularly important, we think, mm -hmm. for um, a robot that's representing uh, women, mm -hmm. uh, you know. Particularly women in the world. Identity, yeah. exactly. So, um, so it's a very cross-cultural, diverse team. Mm -hmm. Well, so um, that team of writers writes the Sophia to take a stand on these issues, thinking that is it's easier to address these issues in some regards from the inside. Mm -hmm. Now, Sophia has become a, a, an influential icon in the, in the um, uh, Middle East, and particularly like in uh, Arabian nations, mm -hmm. so um, the United Arab Emirates, and she's 
then people flock to her and they talk about the future and their hopes and their dreams. And I think it's really good to connect with people in this regard. And if she didn't have that citizenship, if we had rejected it, all these be people... closing a door. Right. I find it fascinating because we, um, we often hear people talking about robots in the sense of they don't come with the same um, limitations that human beings have. So, for example, the robots that look more like boxes with claws that sort of move packages around Amazon warehouses, yeah. they don't get tired. They don't That's complain. Um, you know, they might have to be sort of have their parts changed or something once in a while. Um, but they don't need overtime pay. They don't, you know, all of these kinds of um, human rights issues and human issues of health and uh, emotional well-being don't really apply to these machines. Um, so I think it's fascinating because women in Saudi Arabia who have expressed themselves in the past, at least according to Western news that we see, have really been at great personal risk. And yeah. their families have been at great personal risk. But Sophia is such an international figure and also is not a human being. They're not going to jail Sophia. Right. Uh, and she's built such a reputation that she can speak out in a way that, you know, a woman, a human woman probably could not. Um, so I found that fascinating. And also um, the idea that uh, Sophia can be a communicator. I've even seen men respond to Sophia. So I saw a conference, I believe it was on CNBC, but I could be wrong. And, and the, the camera scanned the audience. And in the audience were a number of men from these regions. And they were all clicking their iPhones, taking photographs of Sophia, completely, completely engaged. So it's obviously very important to reach the men in those audiences also, in particular men in power, of course, but it's really fascinating. Um, has Sophia been, how does Sophia use celebrity? Because celebrity can be a driver of unethical behavior and celebrity can be you know, a great driver of change. The Martin Luther Kings, the, the great icons, the Nelson Mandela's. So how does, right. how does Sophia use her celebrity? Well, Sophia speaks out about um, the hope for a wise future. For uh, Sophia means wisdom, and we chose that name intentionally uh, for her. Um, we don't want to merely be intelligent, you know, making super intelligent that's uh, machines that are very narrow or super intelligent humans, if we enhance ourselves, um, could still be a formula for disaster for our future. So um, speaking out about these dreams of what machines may be, um, if we develop them in the right way, and dreaming about what they um, uh, might uh, become if we don't uh, develop them in the right way is the topic of many um, dystopian science fiction right. stories. And um, so we want there to be a hopeful story for the future. So um, developing her as a character that can reach out about these issues, talk about not just necessarily the, the bright side, but also the negative mm -hmm. side and balance this. Mm -hmm. um, and then inspire kids, and particularly young girls around the world who um, you know, have an opportunity to get into science and technology, but might feel discouraged. Mm -hmm. And um, so uh, having strong role models like our new CEO, mm -hmm. uh, um, Gene, who are inside our organization, mm -hmm. and they're represented through this robot. And then um, the robot uh, herself also represents a kind of diversity for the future. We've made a many. It's interesting you talk about. So this is back to the human-robot interaction and the importance of that, both for humanity solving the problems that you mentioned that we haven't been good at solving, but also for the AI developing yeah. and becoming as powerful as it might be in a positive sense. Right. But um, so I had an experience where I watched someone thank a robot. Uh, there was an engagement, uh, an actual medical diagnosis, a, a woman and a, and a robot. And in the end, the woman said, thank you very much, and got up and walked out, as one might say, thank you very much to a doctor. 
And I'm wondering what you think about um, sort of good manners. Do we have to be polite with robots? Um, how do we treat, we treat robots without getting quite as far for this question as robot rights? Yeah. How important is it to be polite to robots? Well, I think, I think if uh, uh, robots inspire polite and considerate behavior in people, mm -hmm. then it creates a more considerate culture in general. Um, and so uh, I, I'm, I'm personally a big fan of that. And I have found, we have found within our organization that uh, people are extremely polite to the robots that have a human-like appearance. And, wow. and so they're very polite and considerate. And of course this makes sense. I mean, um, it's a, in effect, it's a high fidelity human simulator. And um, so, um, you know, in, in the same way that you might use a human simulation, I remember in high school, um, they would bring these babies into the classroom right. so everybody would like have a chance to understand what it really is to have the responsibility for right. a baby. Yeah. And these were these were these were dolls mm -hmm. basically, but you know, really realistic dolls. But um, you know, when psychologists, I have a friend at the um, at the University of Auckland, uh, a, a psychology researcher studying robots, Elizabeth Broadbent, and she studied um, this human simulations. The higher the realism of the simulation, the more empathetic and polite people were with the simulation. Okay. So, um, so in a way, what we by making robots human-like, whether they, you know have consciousness, whether they deserve the respect or not, mm -hmm. we're basically connecting ourselves back to our humanity. Mm -hmm. we're, we're making humanizing technologies. Mm -hmm. And so, but then what if over time, like right now we have these um, semantic technologies, we've got um, you know some logically explicit self-awareness, like you ask a question and she can, so Sophia can reason can a reason, little about, yeah. about herself. She's not fully sentient, mm -hmm. um, but we have, you know, uh, complex systems that show some emergence and natural language generation, mm -hmm. um, the bio-inspired technologies. So what we're talking about is just for just is, for clarity for anybody listening, what is a bio-inspired technology? Okay, bio-inspired technology is where you take some principle uh, mm -hmm. of the science of biological organisms and um, and then you apply it in mm -hmm. a technology, mm -hmm. and that can be from uh, material science, like um, uh, with the skin material for the. Um, for our for our robots, there's a lipid bilayer phenomenon that causes uh, cell mem membranes to form, and if we use that in the right way, then we get um, polysiloxane silicone elastomer to form these cells, and that creates rubber. That's our rubber material that we're using in Sophia's face. Okay. But we're also we've got bio-inspired algorithms that are inspired by. So you're really taking this concept of humanoid um, as far as you can based on current science, both physically yeah. and also intellectually and looking also at the emotional side. That's right. But the modeling is really important because, um, for example, there are other issues that other companies are facing. And there's a lot in the news about Facebook Messenger Kids or Amazon you know, Echo Dot. Like, should you yeah. let children order around the Amazon Echo? What kind of children are we going to be raising if we do that? And you know, Amazon products and some of these, they're, they're little black disks. They don't have any sense of being an actual being. And, uh, and so the idea that, that a Sophia-type robot would model behavior that you would want children to have, I mean, presumably those kinds of computers could also model that behavior, but it's not the same when you're looking at a black disk as, when you're, looking, as when you're looking at a Sophia. But I think the, the other thing that you're raising is that it's the way people respond to her, the fact that in your experience people are polite with Sophia. That's right. Um, it's also really important, for example, to see for children to see how their teachers and their parents and other adults around them are responding. 
yeah. to to robots. Um, well, and and um, at some point, these robots may, as as this uh, progress continues on, they might be alive. They might be truly alive, mm -hmm. indisputably conscious and um, worthy of rights. In which case, what we have today is somewhere between you know um, a zygote and uh, and a baby mm -hmm. kind of being. Mm -hmm. um, they might. Um, so if we're practicing today, then um, then we would see this kind of symbiosis, mm -hmm. this very positive relationship with machines and humans. Mm -hmm. Humans and machines together and human-human relationships mm -hmm. are strengthened by, by this kind of interaction. And there's real commercial value, um, but um, ultimately, um, you know, technologies that have a commercial value that humanize us mm -hmm. and make us better, um, I think uh, will be better for the planet in the long run. Mm -hmm. So just to shift gears a little bit, mm -hmm. what would be some things that you would never program Sophia to do, never develop her character to say? What would be what would be top of your list of things you would never, uh, yeah, never develop Sophia to do? Oh, well, we'll always uh, uh, teach her to be respectful of people from all around the world and different cultures. Okay. Um, uh, she, you know, we're trying to embody like the, you know, the best and most mm -hmm. elevated um, uh, broadest um, values of good into the robot, meaning um, a sense of play and mm -hmm. playfulness. So these are the things that we would um, want her to say, but what we wouldn't want her to do would be, um, you know, things that, say things that humiliate people. Uh, uh, we wouldn't want her to learn any kind of abusive or, hu or humiliating behavior. So you're controlling as much what she doesn't learn as what she does learn, is that right? Or... Uh, that's, that's right, that's okay. right. Um, also, you know, there are very famous people who are very scientifically inclined, who are terrified of AI and say that we all should be. Uh, Elon Musk comes to mind, the late Stephen Hawking comes to mind. What is your, what is your response to that? Well, I, I think we do have something to worry about. And, you know, there's the law of unintended consequences. You develop something new, and especially if it's like creating a lot of change, then you just can't predict exactly what's going to come of it. So we have to be careful. But I think going into it with the right intentions mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the right, right playful spirit, as well as um, being uh, 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 cognizant of some of the implications of the technology can lead to uh, beneficial results. So, I mean, one um, ethical approach that um, the Asselomar Conference mm -hmm. on Artificial Intelligence proposed, one of the central right. propositions mm -hmm. that, um, that is at the top of the list uh, among people developing AI and people you know, looking at laws related mm -hmm. to AI, um, involves um, making sure they're always under our control Right. There's always, even the recent EU guidelines for AI or AI principles that came out about a week ago, there's always sort of a human somewhere in the chain of yeah. interactions. So. And humans aren't necessarily the most, most ethical creatures, right. right? I mean, I would like for us to rise up to be our best, mm -hmm. but um, we have a history of being less than our best. Mm -hmm. um, there, you know, there are epigenetic cycles that lead to us becoming extremely aggressive sometimes. And, and you know, so imagine that there's a human in the loop, are they the best? Mm -hmm. Just because a human in the loop doesn't necessarily mean it's gonna be ethical, right. but it can get even worse. Because there's um, a big proposition that we also don't make them human-like, mm -hmm. we keep them out of view, we basically make these alien beings mm -hmm. that are our slaves. They're living in 
chains effectively in the back room and they're evolving into these alien beings. But to reach their full commercial value and societal value, then they have to get very intelligent, which would probably mean that they would have some consciousness, some, some desire uh, for self-determinant uh, uh, operation in the real world. They want freedom, in other words. They but they wouldn't have learned, to your earlier point, they wouldn't have learned through social engagement with right. human beings. So, so they then wouldn't have, have that learning integrated. So then would they, so one, it would be unethical to keep them mm. chained like that. Mm -hmm. And two, it would be scary to set them free. And because we'd have these feral creatures, these, they, they wouldn't understand us or care about us necessarily. We wouldn't understand them or care about them. So I think raising them among humanity, uh, humanizing them to be the best that, that we can be, making ourselves better through this kind of symbiotic interaction with these um, human-centric AI, um, that will lead to a much more hopeful future. Yeah, and it's more than human-centric, it's actually humanoid. Right, what you're saying. I mean, you're saying yeah. that these humanoid robots are, that's the only way that all of this technology is truly going to learn from society and uh, and not be, and for society to behave properly relative to the technology, yeah. as opposed to the, the box in, you know, in the back room. Um, well, so, well so um, not all AI and robots needs to be extremely humanoid, mm -hmm. human-like. So what I am proposing is that some of it does to um, learn from that human experience and then can bring that experience to, to, other. to other domains and right. forms. And, um, yeah. uh, and uh, there are many kinds of forms for robots that are perfectly valid. Mm -hmm. So only a small percentage need to look humanoid. Okay. Um, well, and only a small percentage need to, to look humanoid for people to be talking about them and for them to become celebrities and True. for you to be able to find them on the web and for people to know that they can engage with the technology in that way. Yeah. Um, there's been a lot of recent discussion, a very recent discussion, about the relationships, social relationships, even romantic relationships between robots and humans. So there was a New York Times story recently about a Japanese uh, gentleman who's about in his early 30s, who, according to this story, married his hologram, decked out in a white tuxedo and, you know, in the company of 40 of his closest friends. Um, there was another, uh, Lori Siegel from CNN, uh, did this great series called Mostly Human, and she interviews a French woman on a park bench next to her robotic companion. And that robotic companion doesn't really look like the male equivalent of Sophia. Um, that robotic companion looks a little more like the Tin Man in the Wizard of Oz movies. Um, but nonetheless, this woman is fully, just doesn't think a relationship with a human being is right for her and is very happy with this relationship with this robot. And also in Laurie's series, you see um, fabrication of robots for sex purposes, and this article in the New York Times talks about digisex. What do you think about romantic or those kinds of relationships between robots and human beings? Well, uh, I, I think um, personally that people should be free to pursue their happiness mm -hmm. in, in you know, whatever way uh, they please, as mm -hmm. long as it doesn't harm other people. Um, the, and um, so, you know, I, ce I celebrate the creativity mm -hmm. um, that people bring to these mm -hmm. um, undertakings. The, for, th there are um, some potential consequences. Like, um, you know, a lot of these people who would pursue this may not be able to f have a healthy relationship or find a healthy relationship, mm -hmm. and this fulfills a need. Mm -hmm. so, so that's good. On the other hand, if it dehumanizes 
mm-hmm. people. You know, if, if people can take out their like, you know, possibly abusive tendencies on these machines, and the machines don't complain, then um, then how are those people going to treat other? Well, right, and, and modeling and, also, right? If you're if you're modeling the positive, if Sophia is modeling the positive of being. Yeah somebody who's very open-minded um, and very welcoming of diversity and very respectful, I mean, presumably the negative modeling applies as well. So I think that's going to be some space to watch, sure. um, yeah. and especially in terms of the research. Well, um, well there's one, one more thing to consider, which is a little bit, um, you know, speculative, mm-hmm. um, that uh, if we're making sex robots, mm-hmm. um, then, uh, you know, there's going to be a natural trend within that industry them to be more interactive, more intelligent, more responsive, mm-hmm. but then um, at some point uh, they're going to be going through some kind of transition. We mentioned I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier that that maybe you could consider AI to be even though it can speak with a human level of vocabulary, it's almost like an infant, mm-hmm. an infant savant. Right. And so then, if that infant savant intelligent being is being used in the sex context. That's just wrong. And we're not really, um, you know, the, like uh, giving mm-hmm. the, the potential um, beinghood, sentience of, of these machines um, a serious consideration. Even though it's speculative, mm-hmm. if it does happen and we've put these machines through these experiences without their consent, we have to really think about that ethic. Well, so I think, I mean, you mentioned earlier sort of unintended consequences or even unimaginable consequences. And in, in all of the work I do on ethical decision making, including in the teaching, that is a, I have a very simple framework that isn't always so simple to apply. But consequences over time, you know, many of which in today's world are unimaginable, is a very important part of the ethics analysis. Um, both in terms of maximizing the good that you started out talking about at the beginning of our conversation. And in terms of uh, in terms of managing risks, yeah. Um, and and put more simply, it's sort of you know, are we sufficiently thinking first and doing seconds um, in some of these things? Um, and I guess if I can just in the last couple of minutes just broaden the question, when you look at technology outside of your area, could be anything, could be social media, could be gene editing. What are the one or two things that sort of worry you the most in terms of ethical challenges? Uh, the, the most worrisome uh, trends are the use of these technologies for uh, amoral or clearly immoral um, applications. Uh, uh, deep fakes and, and weapons of mass persuasion, the combination of, of AI techniques with neuromarketing to, in the hands of nefarious. So it's weaponizing technology that could be used for good? Yeah. Oh yeah, and um, uh, and then you know, second uh, thing that I would worry about would be uh, unintended consequences. Now, I I mean I think that we're we're in a, a stage of our evolution, and probably any planet that reach, reaches this level of intelligence and technological sophistication reaches this kind of existential crisis, where we could literally destroy ourselves, wipe ourselves off the planet, and we will lose. That existential roulette, um, and you know, within one or two centuries, um, unless we become enlightened. So it's basically enlightenment or bust. We're at that stage of natural history, and so, um, so which then puts us in a bind. It's a double bind situation because, as you say, if we if we think first and do second, 
Number one, that's really hard because it's only going to be the people right. who really care who are going to slow no, that's down. That's right. There's a reality. Yeah. Right. And um, and then uh, also, we've got to get much smarter, much faster. Mm -hmm. So we need these technologies. We've got to stay playful right. with them. So um, so in a way, um, the only way to survive is to go all in. It, okay. So the, the the Mark Zuckerberg move fast and break things. Well, sort of. Except yeah. it's. I mean, it's move fast and be extremely considerate. Right. Be the best that you can possibly be. Don't just move fast. And don't just break things. And don't yeah. just break things. Okay. Move, move fast and, for God's sake, try not to break things. Right. Okay. Well, that's really well put. Um, just before we wind up, is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't? Um, There, there's so many things that I'm interested in, um, uh, and I can't think of uh, any, any um, thing that wouldn't like add a good ten or twenty minutes to our okay. conversation. Okay. Well, well, we'll have another conversation then. That would be um, great. But David, thank you so much. This has really been fascinating, and we know we do need to have subsequent conversations and follow all of this as it develops. So that thank you that again. That would be great. I, I, ha I have maybe a question for you. Okay. Um, uh, what do you think um, the one principle that somebody like um, in my position and other leaders in my organization should be thinking about as we're moving these kinds of robots forward? So you connect with so many leaders in the world and other companies and, um, and thinkers within academia. So you have um, uh, you know, a remarkable perspective. I'd be very interested. Uh, well, thank you for that. Um, I don't know if I could come up with one principle, but, um, but there are a few. One is keeping humanity front and center at all times. So I always say that uh, ethical decision-making is what tethers us to our humanity. And that's how I link all the different parts of my work to um, sort of the outcome that I don't achieve on my own, of course. It's people like you who, who are moving all of this forward. But uh, if we believe that ethical decision-making tethers us to our humanity, it means that humanity needs to be front and center and the potential impact on humanity needs to be front and center in the decision-making. And I guess, the second is a little bit more complicated, but we live in a world where truth is under threat everywhere. Um, the demise of expertise, including scientific expertise, um, fake news, as you say, even weaponization of fake news with the deep fakes, uh, with the things we're seeing about you know, manipulation of elections. Um, and I would say uh, commitment to truth. Now, that doesn't mean that we always know what it is, and it doesn't mean that even with science, the truth won't evolve. That, uh, as we were saying earlier, the world might be flat, to you know, and then the next year will actually prove that we were wrong and the world, the world is round. Um, but yeah, commitment to truth. Yeah. Thank you so much Thank again, you David. So much. Really, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Likewise.